Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we talked to Elizabeth Mason, a lawyer who is using data and technology to fight poverty in the US. This week, we hear from an entrepreneur who believes that artificial intelligence is about to become part of the fabric of all of our lives. I don't really care so much about what the underlying technology is. I care about what does it feel like to the user. To me, an AI product is something that feels smart. It should feel like it understands you. Other than forcing you to understand it, all traditional technology products force the user to understand the product. That's the voice of Phil Libin, a startup investor and the former CEO of Evernote, who came into the FT studio recently to discuss his ambitious plan to create a global AI incubator. I began by asking him why the name All Turtles. I kind of wanted an unusual name. You know, we wanted a name that uh, forces you to make a new box in your head to hold it in. I think of All Turtles is an unusual name. It's a reference to a Bertrand Russell, Turtles All the Way Down anecdote, but mostly I just like it because it's not the name you expect. Indeed. So it's an AI studio. Tell us, what does it do? So we make AI products. Um, I think that AI is the solution to many of today's problems. Uh, and making practical products that can be made now sometime in the next 12 months that could be brought to market that would have been impossible to make even two to three years ago because the tech stack just wasn't there. And we have a model for doing it, which I think is much more effective than the typical you know VC startup treadmill that people think of. And we think by doing that, we can do it all over the world. So not just in San Francisco, but we're in San Francisco, Tokyo, Paris, and hopefully uh, everywhere soon. So give us an example. What are the AI companies that you're investing in at the moment and developing? We have 11 companies total. I think seven or eight of them are actually publicly known. Uh, a few of them are still secret in the works. Butter.ai just launched. It's basically an automatic search assistant. So as you're talking to your team on Slack or whatever and have questions about you know where a certain file is or what a contract clause is, you can just ask Butter and it'll go and find it and find out and it'll search through all of the different document repositories that you may have at work automatically. Sunflower Labs just made news that is an AI sensor and autonomous drone for home security. And they just made a big partnership and investment news. Stanley, Black & Decker partnered with them to make the product. They have just released a really cool video of their drone flying around uh, your home, keeping it secure. And what's the USP of your studio? How are you operating differently from other incubators in this area? Well, I guess the main thing is we're not actually trying to be different. You know, the older I get, the less motivated I am by being different. I just want to be really good. I think what we're doing is going to come down to the execution. It doesn't need to be an original idea. We just need to actually make important products. I think the main difference, uh, I think there's three. One is we're not an incubator, we're not an accelerator because we're not trying to make companies. We're really challenging this idea that a company is a natural way to organize around innovation. This idea that like, if you're a brilliant product founder, the first thing you have to do, step one, is like make a little company. I think that's a dumb idea. And I think it's actually why so few places in the world are good at making innovative products because somehow we've gotten people to buy into this idea that you have to make a company first. And companies, I think, are increasingly an archaic concept. So we're a product-first studio. We say we want the best teams, the best people, and you can just make products, and you don't have to make a company. Now, some of them can become companies, but they don't have to. That's not the point. The second thing is we're focused on one theme. We're AI-focused, which means that we have, hopefully, some of the smartest people and the most interesting people in the industry working together on solving the same problems. And the third is we want to do this everywhere in the world. So we're not sitting just in San Francisco, but we are, like I said, opening in San Francisco, Tokyo, Paris, and hopefully everywhere, because we think with this formula, 
there's nothing magic about Silicon Valley. We can do this everywhere in the world. Right. There's lots of things I want to come back to in that, particularly this idea that companies are archaic, which is a very interesting theme. But first of all, I'd just like to understand a bit more about what some of these companies are doing. So AI is applied to bots, digital assistants. Can you talk a bit more about that as a user of one of these products? How do I interact with it? What AI means is actually really interesting. I think everyone's got different definitions of it. I come about this from a design-centric view. So I don't really care so much about what the underlying technology is. I care about what does it feel like to the user. To me, an AI product is something that feels smart. That basically has three characteristics. It should feel like it understands you. Other than forcing you to understand it, all traditional technology products force the user to understand the product. You know, when we made Evernote, we decided like, okay, this button goes here and this button goes there. And you have to know that if you want to do this, you have to swipe over to the left and hit this tab and do this kind of stuff. You know, we forced 200 million people in the world to understand Evernote. And, you know, hopefully we gave them a product that was worthwhile for them to understand it. But the next version of products, you shouldn't have to be forced to understand them. They should understand you. That's the big change from a user perspective. The second thing is it should just feel smart. It should be able to accomplish more than you expect it to be able to accomplish. And the third is it should get smarter. It should learn. It should feel like it's getting better the more you use it. I think that's what like a best personal relationship is with a person or with your pet or something. It feels like it's kind of smart. It feels like it understands you. It feels like it's getting better. Those are the kinds of products we want to make. Go into more detail about this. So I'm interacting with this, but what will it do for me? How will it understand what I want it to do? And how will it help me become more productive during my working day? Well, it really depends on what the products are. So one example is one of our companies called Growbot. And it's very simple. It's really just about the interaction design. It plugs into Slack or into Microsoft Teams, kind of whatever you're using for team communication. And it sits in your team communication channels. And it listens for praise, for compliments. So basically, if you say, great job, Phil, on doing this interview or fixing that bug or kudos to Bob for this. Whenever it sees positive feedback from one team member about another, it wakes up and it records it. And it shows that, you know, it's recording it and lets people vote up and down and attach emoji. And then it just keeps track. It keeps track of who's praising whom about what and gives metrics and stats and things like that. So it's an automatic employee recognition system. So very straightforward. Like the AI part of that is technically not super advanced. It doesn't have to understand all sorts of things. All it has to do is like find praise and keep track of it. But it's such a simple thing that has a profound effect on company culture. There's more than 10,000 companies using it already. And the stories we hear from customers is that it's just, it fundamentally changes our culture because you still talk the way that you used to. It's not a new app you have to do. It's already sitting in your existing communication channels. But now when you give someone recognition, it counts. And that really changes how likely you are to give recognition and how thoughtful teams are and who gets praised and who gets recognized. So it's this uh, pretty simple thing. Could not have been built two to three years ago because we couldn't have made this a separate app. You're not going to like load up a separate app just to praise someone. You're going to do it the way you're already doing it. But it's possible now and it can have a it can have a pretty profound effect. So that's just one example. So it's a kind of automated performance appraisal system that you just don't think about. It's embedded into the, as you're saying, the functioning of the company. It's not so much that you don't think about it. It's that you don't have to learn how to use it. You're just talking normally and then it participates in the conversation. You do think about it in the sense that you actually are happy that it's doing it and it's specifically only for positive feedback and reinforcement and reviews. And so it, it embeds itself into the fabric of the company pretty quickly. And that must be a temptation to game the system. 
you would have thought. How are these companies experiencing this in real life? Do they suddenly see a surge of people praising each other in order to register extra points, as it were? Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. Like thinking through the cultural effects of this stuff is fascinating. One of the things that makes this work pretty well is it's designed to be pretty transparent. So everyone can see who's praising whom about what. So behavior that's fishy, you can just you can just see it right away. So it actually discourages things that are disingenuous and encourages, you know, earnest feedback. But thinking through those dynamics is exactly what we mean when we talk about AI design. The hard thing here isn't the algorithms in the back end. I mean, those are hard and important. The hard thing here is like designing the actual experience, thinking through the flow, figuring out the impact of the culture, how will people use it. And that's really what we specialize in. We want to work on products just as they go from the phase of being completely technology-bound to being design-bound. Like once the technology stack is good enough where now the important thing is being really thoughtful about what the product is. Very similar to what Evernote was like. You know, when we were getting started with Evernote in 2007, 2008, mobile was like that. AI in 2017 is where mobile was 10 years ago. When I was making mobile phone apps three years before that, in you know 2004, it was possible to make these phone apps, but it was entirely a technology problem. You had to worry about, you know, how do you fit into this tiny screen, small amount of memory? It wasn't mature enough where the design really mattered. It wasn't mainstream. But by 2007, 2008, after the iPhone, after the App Store, the products that won weren't necessarily the ones with the most advanced engineering. They were the ones with the most thoughtful design principles. And that's what Evernote was and we tried to be. So we try to apply that exact same timing to AI right now, making products where the design is what's important. So that machine-human interface is clearly is critically important in this. And you can imagine other uses that companies would like to apply to your robot technology. For example, if you wanted to study, I don't know, company morale or spot fraudulent behavior or even signs of mental depression, clearly you'd have the capability to do that. But how do you hardwire in the kind of morality of this and not invade people's privacies and do it within the bounds of accepted corporate practice? I think by making that your job. So I think there's a big change in how I'm thinking about things and how I think a lot of my peers and my betters in the industry are thinking about it. I think there's a growing realization in tech that it is our job to think through all of the aspects of the product, including its social aspects and how it's going to get used and how it's going to be abused and what the repercussions are. And it's no longer acceptable to say that's somebody else's job. You can't really say, well, you know, the products we make are amoral. They could be used for good. They could be used for evil. Like that's above our pay grade. We're just going to make the products and then we'll let somebody else figure out how to make them good. I don't hear nearly as much as that as I used to. I think now people are realizing because of AI, because of the Trump administration, because of lots of things that no, actually no one else is going to figure this out. It's, it's up to industry to make virtuous products. And the first step is just to admit that and then to try to set up processes that do that. And we very much try to embrace that ethos. So the point of All Turtles is not to make amoral technology. It's to make virtuous technology. That's a really fascinating point, isn't it? And do you think, therefore, that that's going to be a big differentiating factor, that those companies who can do exactly what you're saying are going to be a lot more competitive in the marketplace because the adoption rates and the acceptability of their usage is going to be much higher? Yeah, I mean, they shouldn't do the right thing as a competitive advantage. They should do the right thing because it's the right thing. But yeah, I would flip that around. I would say that companies who aren't doing that are just going to start seeing their usage plummet. So it'll become table stakes as it should. How transformational overall is AI going to be, do you think? Completely. It's going to weave itself into the fabric of everyday life within a few years. In that sense, it'll be similar to what mobile was in 2007, where you know we talked about Evernote as a mobile company in 07. And even then, we were sort of starting to roll our eyes at it because we kind of said, well, in the next three to four years, we're not going to be able to say mobile anymore because it won't mean anything because everything will have been mobile. AI is the same, except more so. Like five years from now, we're not going to be able to say we're an AI company. People will have no idea what we're talking about because they'll be like, as opposed to what? It'll be a part of the fabric of all life. 
which means that over the next three to five years is when the products that are going to become the fabric of all life are going to get created. So that's why now is the best time to focus on. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Okay, and you're saying that you've got a different method of developing a lot of these companies, focusing on the products rather than the companies themselves. Could you talk a bit more about that? If I were a company that came into your studio how would I benefit from what you're doing to develop the company as opposed to what a traditional incubator would do? Well, I think it's a different approach. So we think of ourselves as product first. You know, I've been on the startup VC treadmill for 20 years. Actually, I started my first company 20 years ago this year. I think actually next month is going to be our 20th anniversary. So I've been starting companies, selling companies, advising companies. I was a VC all through this process. And it's a stupid process. The vast majority of startups fail, period. And the vast majority of startups fail for reasons that have nothing to do with their product or their idea. Most of them never get to the point where they can give their idea a fair trial. They fail for company building reasons. They fail because there's founder drama or they screw up HR or they screw up something illegal or they don't know how to do marketing or they can't raise money because they don't know how to raise money. There's all these things that you have to do to make a company, which is really hard, but not important to making a good product. And that's what most founders screw up. And almost the entire ecosystem right now around VCs and accelerators and incubators is based on teaching founders these skills completely unnecessarily. Why should we take brilliant product founders and teach them how to be mediocre CEOs? How does that benefit the world? Why should we take brilliant product founders and teach them how to be mediocre marketers? No other industry does this. Why don't we just have a structure where brilliant product founders can do the thing that's going to change the world, which is make important products and not have to do the hard but unimportant stuff until they're ready to do it. And maybe they're never ready to do it, which is also fine. So that's the approach. So a couple of the words you use in your question, we kind of quibble with. Companies don't come to us. We're not a program. You know, we don't have like an admission process. It's not like we need, you know, 2,000 admissions for 20 seats. We find great founders. They find us. We have a conversation. If it makes sense to do this, we figure out how to do this. We model ourselves after a modern Hollywood studio. When we say studio, we mean like HBO, like Hulu, like Netflix, like Amazon is a studio. It's a place where the best people in the industry, it's plan A, that's where they want to come. Like if you're one of the most talented filmmakers of your generation, say you're a new filmmaker about to graduate from film school, you have this passion about some idea for a movie you want to make, you don't want to start a movie company. You want to like go and get this made at Netflix or at HBO. And when you come there, you're not asking like, well, what does HBO give me? It's about you're going to be in this environment making this show. So it's a place to attract really creative people, let them do crazy, innovative, creative things without worrying too much about protecting the reputation of other properties, but in a way that's hyper-professional, where they're not having to learn which microphones to use. And they're clearly learning from each other as well in that milieu. From each other and from people with 20 years experience doing this stuff. So one example is it took us at Evernote 
And Evernote was my third company, so arguably I, I knew a little bit more about what we were doing. But even at Evernote, it probably took us six years before we did our first pricing exercise. So I invented the Evernote price sometime around month one of the company, totally randomly. I said it's $5 a month. And then we stuck with that price for like six years. We A-B tested everything else. We never touched the price because like nobody knew how to do pricing. It's a black art. What startup founders know how to think about pricing? At some point, I remember like in year three or four, I thought, well, boy, I really should get smarter about pricing. And so I had like a long trip. Actually, I think it was flying to London from San Francisco. And so I put on my Kindle, I downloaded some books about pricing theory that I was going to read. But also like just in case, I also put The Lord of the Rings on there and like wound up reading The Lord of the Rings for the 13th time and didn't touch the pricing book. And so six years after we started Evernote, we hired our first pricing person and we almost tripled our revenue in the next two years just by being smart about pricing. So no startups know how to do pricing well initially, but everything that's going to come out of all turtles is going to have pretty decent pricing right off the bat because the people who do that, you know, they're on staff, they're on studio. How does the financing of these companies work? So we're an operating company. We raised financing to fund all of this ourselves. Actually, we're just finishing up the fundraise. We'll be talking about that probably in the next couple of weeks once we get the final numbers, but it's a significant sum of money. I figured I had one good fundraise left in me before we actually had to prove something, and it turned out to be true. So I was um, tens of millions of dollars. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And with with some really great investors. So Salesforce Ventures actually just announced that they led the round. So they're a big investor and partner in ours. And we have General Catalyst, my previous firm, and then some great investors in Japan. Mikutani-san, who's the founder and CEO of Rakuten, and Hayashi-san at Digital Garage. In Europe, we're working with Xavier Neal in Paris. So really an amazing investor group, and we're just getting the finishing touches set up on it. And then we work with our own investors and with more outside investors to provide capital to these companies as needed. So when they need external capital, we help them get it. Sometimes they don't need it. Sometimes they already have it. Sometimes we fund it. So we try to be flexible. Again, kind of the way that the modern Hollywood studios work. Like There's a lot of flexibility about how projects get funded. But the point is the funding is just one of many things that we need to do in a professional, thoughtful manner rather than forcing brilliant young founders to become mediocre fundraisers. You know, intellectual property is another idea. By the time we started Evernote, it was my third company and I already had a bunch of patents, so I kind of understood IP. So we had a pretty decent IP portfolio at Evernote. But startups don't understand patents. But we have a full-time amazing person at All Turtles who does patent strategy with all of these companies. And so everything that comes into it gets time with this person. And if you were a founder, you wouldn't even know if people like this existed because they're not hanging out with you in, in university. And here they do. So that's the idea. It's a professionalized studio that combines a really exciting place for crazy, talented entrepreneurial people to work with really experienced professionals. And that's what you mean by the phrase that you were using earlier, that the companies are archaic. This is a kind of different network. It's a different kind of ecosystem for developing great products. Yeah, I think companies are becoming increasingly archaic for lots of reasons. There's lots of evidence for this. I think the average age for a Fortune 500 company in the 70s was like 75 years. And the average age for a Fortune 500 company today is like 15 years. So even like the giant companies don't last very long. They don't outlast people. And then the really shocking stat is the average tenure for employees at tech companies. Studies like this just came out. I think uh, basically for all the top 10 tech companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, all of them, the average tenure of employees is way under two years. It's like one and a half years, 1.6 years, 1.7 years. So this idea that you're going to join a company and the company is going to be pretty much a permanent thing and you're going to stay there for 10, 20 years and your company network is how you're going to organize around innovation. Like it's just not what happens. It's not what young people want. They're not thinking in those timescales. So there's a lot of fretting at the moment about the power of the platforms and the Google and the Facebooks and so on. 
Do you worry about that? Or do you think that competitive churn is going to be so great that people are going to leave those companies, they're going to start new ones, so that there will be the competitive churn as there was in earlier eras? Yeah. So I prefer to embrace things rather than panicking about the way the world is. Think about, okay, this is the way the world is. How do we make it better? You know, how do we embrace that? So I think the companies that you're talking about really aren't even companies anymore. They're really meta companies. And what they do is they'll bring on a team. A few smart people will work on a project for a year and a half. Then they'll leave. They'll start a company. They'll start a startup. That startup will get bought by, you know, one of the other platform companies. They'll be there for a year and a half. Then they'll leave. Then they'll start another company. They'll get bought by their original company. They're going to stay in economic orbit of these big platform companies. And the platforms allow them to get to the product much faster. So it's a great thing. But it's not like all of the innovation is going to come from inside of these monolithic companies. There's huge opportunity for startups and for investors. And I think even just getting bigger. So I'm actually a big fan of what the platform companies do. There is a lot of risk that we should think about and see with clear eyes and figure out how to mitigate. But in general, I think that the technology world is a much better place now than it's ever been in the history of the universe. Now, you were saying that you want to take your studio concept to Tokyo and Paris. How far along the road are you with those two cities? And why did you choose those two in particular? Yeah, we're opening up in uh, Tokyo now. So I actually just hired the team. So the plan is to be up and running by January 1st in Tokyo. Paris will be roughly the same. I'm actually heading to Paris right after this and interviewing people to be the head of the studio and looking at space. We're partnering with Xavier Neal with Station F over there. So basically, by the beginning of the year, we'll be active in all three places. And we want to have more locations. We want to probably go to Mexico City after this, several other locations, which I think are just really, really, really promising. We picked those first three. I don't know. Honestly, I just... I have a lot of friends there. I like the food. The three places I like going to a lot. You have to start somewhere. It was important for us to do something global from day one because I don't want to talk about this as a new model for how the world should organize itself to make innovative products and then sit in San Francisco for five years. So we kind of forced ourselves, okay, from day one, three locations, and then uh, you know, hopefully more after that. And are you going to those cities because you think there's AI talent in them or because the interesting state of the local economy is that you can apply AI in interesting ways? Yeah, so I think we look for places that have a lot of brilliant product people. So I want places with brilliant engineers, brilliant designers, brilliant product people, and ideally also a poor startup ecosystem, which kind of describes every big city other than San Francisco. Take Mexico City, for example. When I went to Mexico City, I was blown away. I was stunned by how great it is. A huge city, it's 20 million people, much bigger than San Francisco, pretty close by to us. Amazing engineering talent, amazing design talent, amazing work ethic, amazing product people. I went to lots of incubators, accelerators, startup pitches, hackathons, universities. I gave a talk at Mexico City University. It's like 300,000 students on one campus. It's huge and it's vastly talented. It has all of the ingredients for making important products. So then why haven't there been 20 really fundamental important tech products that come out of Mexico City in the past decade? I think it's because it's not a good place to make a small company. The ecosystem for making small companies is not very good there because, you know, the lawyers don't really know how to deal with small companies and the accountants don't really know how to do it and the investors aren't the same and the bureaucracy is too heavyweight and maybe there's more corruption. For whatever set of reasons, it's just not a good startup ecosystem. And so I've spent years traveling the world to places like this and then giving sanctimonious lectures about how they should reform their civil society to be friendlier for making small companies. And then I realized... That's only important because we've arbitrarily decided that you have to make a little company before you can make a product. What if we just eliminate that need to make a little company? Arguably, that's the only thing that's magical about Silicon Valley is we're good at making little companies, but that's only important because we've declared that to be important. Look, Memphis, great city, really amazing at making pancakes. 
which is really good pancakes in Memphis. We could have arbitrarily decided that, okay, if you want to make an important product, step one, make some pancakes. And then Memphis would have been the tech capital of the world, and we would have been in San Francisco sitting there thinking about how do we get like a pancake-making ecosystem. And honestly, like making pancakes and making small companies is roughly the same in terms of their importance to making an important product. So rather than going to all these places and saying, let's make an ecosystem for making small companies, we just say, we'll make a professional studio, we'll get your most brilliant people, we'll make important products together, and then maybe they become companies, maybe we don't, we don't really care. And that unlocks the potential everywhere in the world. What about the country of your birth, Russia? Vladimir Putin was saying that whoever dominates AI is going to be the ruler of the world. And Russia has this phenomenal human talent. Do you see Russia counting in the AI world? Yeah, I mean... I'm actually thinking my contrarian instincts are kicking in, thinking like maybe now is actually a good time to open something up in Moscow just because everyone's going in the other direction. Maybe I'm starting to get more optimistic about Russia, which I know sounds weird, but only because it's such a contrarian view. Uh, Look, there's amazing talent in Russia. Two of our teams have at least part of their technical team in Russia, both the Edwin team, which is an AI for teaching English, and the Replica team, which is kind of an AI confidant, best friend. So yeah, engineering talent's amazing, design talent's amazing. And yet it's a poor place to make startups. The ecosystem isn't as good. So it's kind of got all the raw ingredients. The politics are a little bit complicated, which is the only thing that would give me pause, but maybe it's a good time to do it. Putin's comments about, you know, ruling the world, I think, are intentionally inflammatory. We're not trying to make the kinds of products that are going to take over the world. We're trying to make useful products for people. All right, we must end it there. But thank you so much, Phil. That was a really fascinating talk. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon. <laughs>